If you would, join me in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I'll be teaching from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab one in the back. We have some back there on the resource table. Uh, You can take one of those. It's our gift to you. But John chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read those for us. I'm going to ask God for his help. And then we will look at the text this morning. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Would you hear the word of God? Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Let us ask the Lord for his gracious help as we look at this passage. Father, we praise your name for the gathering of your people. We praise your name that we get to come together this morning in this place. We ask you, God, to work in and through this time together. We give you praise and glory for your word We give you praise and glory that uh, this is not just a history lesson, but this is something that is applicable to us today. Father, I pray that you would work in and through the preaching of your word, that you would exalt the Savior, and that you would humble the sinner, that they may see Christ as their only hope in this world. Father, we pray simply for illumination of this text. And so we ask what we know not you would teach us and what we are not you would make us and what we have not you would give us by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Now, many of us know the answer to that, and it states this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All men are made to glorify God. All of humanity, all of creation, that is the primary purpose of creation. It is the principal goal of humanity, glorification of God. 
all other objectives in our lives are built on the foundational reality that people, creation, everything in this world is made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But what if? What if in glorifying God, we see hardships? What if in glorifying God, he chooses in his divine purpose and wisdom to take us through hardships and trials, tribulations and sufferings that we would never embark upon ourselves? What if God uses trials, tribulations, and the likes for his glorification? What about our greatest opponent in this life itself? Death. That is our greatest adversary. It is against us. Can God use death for our good and for his glorification. Well, brothers and sisters, the text before us today heralds an answer to the questions just asked. It proclaims a resounding yes. God can indeed and does indeed use all things, even death itself, for his glorification, which is ultimately our Good. See, the greatest hardships often produced renewed clarity of God's glory. In those times, we are confronted with our fragility and dependency on someone that is far greater than ourselves. And listen, nothing exposes our finite fragility like death. See, death reminds us that we have limited control over our own lives. And we also have limited control over the lives of the ones we love. And death is a reality that none of us can escape, brothers and sisters. We cannot escape the reality that we will die if the Lord should tarry. But Christians have hope, especially in death. We trust that through Christ we will be resurrected again. Amen? We know that is the promise of Scripture. John Flavel, a 17th century Puritan, is quoted here. It's very helpful. And he says very simply, I quote, Oh, Then let not believers stand in fear of the grave. He that hath one foot in heaven need not fear to put the other into the grave. In quotes. Better yet, Scripture tells us that Christians have victory over death. Many places we see this, but one specific instance is when Paul writes in chapter 15 of his first letter to the Corinthians, and he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. But let's be honest. Despite this reality, death still hurts. When we hear the news of a loved one that's near the end of their life, on their deathbed, knocking at death's door, it produces pain. When we hear the news like we did last week that a three-year-old child in our community has died a tragic death, It grieves us when we learn that a young mother of four lost her life giving birth to twins and has now left her family for her eternal family. It produces burdens, and it should. 
I mean, we know that there is a reality that we live in right now in this world that we are affected by the sting and the pain and the grievance of sin. But beloved, let us see that even in death we have much to learn about our Savior. And by God's grace, he has given us this account of Lazarus's death and resurrection to help us as we navigate this world that we live in that is plagued with death. As we look at our text, we recall that last week we wrapped up chapter 10. Pastor Gabe uh, walked us through that. And we saw and we look back and we see that Jesus has now escaped death himself again. He's escaped arrest and he's escaped death. His time had not yet come. But what is most prominent and most prudent for us to look through is to see that Jesus has identified himself as the good shepherd in chapter 10. He's identified himself as the good shepherd. He said, I am gathering a flock of people, my sheep. They're my people. I'm gathering them. They've been given to me by God the Father. And he also states that this flock is now protected and cared for by his divine provision. In fact, in verses 27 through 29 of chapter 10, Jesus makes a profound statement that declares eternal security for his flock. Look up there with me. It's right above our text. He says in verse 27, my sheep, this flock that has been given to me, my sheep, hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will Never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. And he goes on here, and he tells them why this is so. He says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. My Father, God the Father, is greater than everything. And he said, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then, then he connects himself with the Father here. He says, I and the Father, we are one. So if the Father gave the people to me, you can guarantee they're not going anywhere. We have eternal security here. And then... Following this profundity, we are told that one of Christ's sheep, Lazarus, Lazarus now is sick. There's something going on with Lazarus. And so we know what happens to Lazarus is that he's, he ultimately dies. We know that what happens here is that this sickness will eventually lead to eternal, temporal death. But we can see that here we see and know that Jesus in this final sign that's recorded by John shows that this is an exclamation point on the other signs that have been given to us that show us Christ's divinity here. So as we look at this first section, verses 1 through 16, I want to just break it down into two parts. The first part we'll see here is the news of Lazarus's death. Okay, we'll see that in verses 1 through 3 here. We see the news of what happens. And then after that, we're going to see Jesus respond to the news of Lazarus's death. So let's look here first at the news. So first here, John provides us with some character development. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. 
It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Let's make some quick observations here. So we see quickly that Lazarus is the brother of Martha and Mary. Uh, This is the same Mary that sits with Jesus while Martha is working. It's the same uh, story that was given here in Luke chapter 10. Mary is also the same one in uh, chapter 12 of John's gospel that we'll get to uh, in a couple of months that will show that she anoints Jesus's feet with some very expensive oil. Remember, she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Remember, Judas gets angry at this. He's like, she's wasting money here. What she should be doing is using that money to feed the poor. Now, we know that Judas had some uh, very wrong motives in that. The reason why he says that is not because he cares for the poor. Rather, he cares for himself. But these are the family that we are looking at here. And all we see about Lazarus is that he is their brother. Now, why is John, the gospel writer here, mentioning Mary and saying even here, right, that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother? He's using this, but he hasn't told the story yet. The story comes later in John's account. Now, what that will tell us is that probably one, that it was a very prominent story in their time, something that people knew about, that they had talked about. Also, we know that John's gospel was written after some of the other gospel accounts. So John is likely assuming that the other gospel accounts have made their circulation. And so now he's also reminding them, hey, this is who this is. Yes, I'm going to talk about it later, but here is who we're talking about here. Now, the point here is just to show that these weren't just average people that we're talking about. I mean, these were people here that Jesus loved, that he had some some relationships with, people that he cared for, people that he loved. This wasn't just informal dealings. This family, these siblings were near and dear to Jesus Christ. And so then we see in verse 3, So the sisters then, they sent to him, sent a messenger to Jesus, is what that means. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now what we see here is that Lazarus has not died. At this point, when they have sent the message to Jesus, Lazarus is sick. He hasn't died yet. Now, we must take a couple of points of application here that I think are very important here. Number one, let us notice here the relational component of Jesus' ministry. Let us see here the way that Jesus loved those around him. Not only did Jesus have disciples, which he was relationally attached to, Jesus had friends. Jesus shows us here that he has friends. He has people here that he cares about, that maybe didn't follow him every day as his disciples did, but he has people that he has met along the way, that he's developed relationships with, that he cares for deeply. And while we should always remember Jesus' deity, that he is fully God, let us take notice here of Jesus' humanity. That Jesus Christ, the God-man, had friends, had people that he loved. Friends, I must ask you, are you a friend of Jesus? Are you a friend of 
Jesus. Now, let me just say here that if you do not follow Jesus as Lord, the answer is no. You are not a friend of Jesus. See, we cannot reduce the relationship with Jesus to solely a friendship. Jesus is not just our buddy. We must obey Jesus as Lord or we have nothing at all. That is what we are called to do. That is what we must do. We cannot have one Jesus without the other. Jesus is not separated by our ideas of him. They go to Jesus. They say, Lord, meaning they follow him. Lord, Lazarus is ill. But we can have confidence that those who follow Jesus as Lord also have a great friend in Christ. A great friend. A friend that will never leave you. A, a friend that will never deceive you. A friend that will never let you down. That is the comfort of friendship, relationship with Christ. He is far above and beyond any friendship we could ever imagine here on this side of eternity. Second, by way of application here, I just want us to look here at their, their approach to Jesus here. Let's look at how Mary and Martha, how they emphasize Jesus' love for Lazarus, not Lazarus's love for Jesus. They don't say, Lord, Lazarus loves you so much. Can't you do something for him? What do they say? Lazarus, the one you love. The emphasis here is on Christ's love for Lazarus, not Lazarus's love for him. In 1 John 4, 10, John, the writer of this gospel, writes and says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word for substitute. He paid for our sins. And then John goes on later and says, we love because he first loved us. Listen, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. Our greatest hope is in God's love for us, not in our love for God. One of my favorite hymns is He Will Hold Me Fast. We sing that sometimes here as we gather as brothers and sisters on Sundays. And I, I, I love this song. And here's the first uh, stanza here. And it says, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. Like, I can't hold on to Christ. It's him holding on to me. He will hold me fast. For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. Brothers and sisters, take comfort in the fact that if you are in Christ, he is holding tightly to you. And his grip will never let go. Third, let us notice here this family's action in the midst of hardships. What do they do? 
How do they respond to this sickness, this illness that they are going through, the trials and tribulations, the sufferings in their lives? They go to Jesus. They go to Christ. Uh, This for us today is prayer. They go. They pray. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that in times of trials, prayer is our greatest ally. We must pray. We must be a people that commit ourselves to prayer. You know why? Because God is the one we need the most. We need God to intervene and to work in our situations. Now listen, yes, when we are sick, get the best doctors you can find. When you're dealing with financial hardships, rework your budget. Work with someone that will help you do that. If you're suffering through mental struggles, talk with your pastors. Talk with friends, with those that you confide in. Maybe get counseling, biblical counseling if you need it. But brothers and sisters, let us remember that above all, we need the power of God to work in and through us to help us through all the toils and labor of life. That is first and foremost. And we see here Martha and Mary show us this example. They go to Jesus. They say, we need you. We need your help. So my encouragement, my challenge here is that we would be a people to go to God in our need. We'd be a people that cry out to God, help me, I cannot help myself. Cry out. <laughs> Let's now look at the response of Jesus and his disciples here. So the message has been set. The, they, they've Jesus has now heard the news. Martha and Mary, they've they've sent a messenger. The messenger has said, Lazarus is ill. He's sick here. So what does Jesus do? How does Jesus Christ respond here? Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Now, real quick, Jesus doesn't mean that this sickness isn't fatal like I already said, right? Obviously, we know that Lazarus is going to die. He is going to die. But what he is saying is that Lazarus' ultimate, final, eternal reality is not death here. Then Jesus reveals an extraordinary reality. Let's look on. He says, so he's not going to die. It is, here's what it is, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Huh? You you mean to tell me that Jesus is saying here that this illness is for good. This is purposeful. There's meaning behind this illness. Yes, that's what the text tells us. And and so then Jesus kind of responds in accordance to this reality that he's just set out. Look at verse 5. He says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. We're seeing that relational equity here on display. Uh, He loves them, loves them very much. He cares for them so much here. So what does Jesus do? So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus gets the news Lazarus' illness. 
and he waits. He stops. He doesn't immediately jump up. He doesn't immediately run, stop everything he's doing, and, and go. No, he waits here. He stayed not one day, two days longer in the place where he was. And the text tells us that the reason why he stayed is why? Because he loved them. What does this mean? How does this help us? Then says to the disciples after this, and says we're going to go to Judea again. So he waits and then says we are going to go. Now let's look here and let's look at a few applications for us here as we just like see this reality that is far beyond our grasp, far beyond what we would do or want to be done. And that brings the first application here. Oftentimes, the approach of Jesus challenges our natural inclinations. Okay? Let me explain what I mean here. When things are rough we want immediate help, don't we? Yes, we do. We want relief from the stress. We want relief from whatever situation that we're in. The trials and tribulations, look, fix it now, Lord. I mean, think about whatever you might be going through right now. Maybe you're one of the blessed ones in here that isn't going through anything. Think about what you just went through and then remember, you're probably about to go through something soon. But think about whatever it is that you're struggling with. What has your prayer been? Lord, change this situation. Lord, remove me from this. Lord, change them. Oh, if you would just change that person, I'll tell you what, it'll make everything better. Will you just fix this, God? Will you just change this situation right now? Like we, we, we treat prayer like a hot pocket, right? We throw it in the microwave, put it on a minute 30, we do something else, we come back ready to eat. We want God to work now. I mean, that's our natural inclination. We, we want that. And then when he doesn't, what do we say? Like, where are you at, God? Come on, Lord. I can't believe you're not working. No, what you can't believe is he's not doing what you want him to do. And here we see that what we should often, or what we should do rather than what we often do, is to ask God to work in and through our current situations to produce God-glorifying results. Sometimes God says, we're going to sit right here for a little bit. Sometimes the answer is, you're going to wait. You need to feel this a little bit longer because the work I'm doing in you has not been completed. And if I remove you from it now, it's not going to happen. See, sanctification is a bumpy road, brothers and sisters. It's hard. It's tough. And God, in his divine sovereignty, allows us to go through things for his glory. This life is not about us. We're beneficiaries of God's grace, his lavish love. There's so many things that we benefit from. But listen, let me tell you, if no one else has, you are not the center of the universe. God is the creator and sustainer, the center, all-powerful of all things. It is about God's glory, not yours. The greatest illustration we have of this is when 
Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. What does he say? He, he knows he's about to face death. He, he knows he's about to feel pain. He, he knows that he's about to have the wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of those whom he came to die for, those whom repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus absorbs that wrath for Christians. If you are not a Christian, you are still under that wrath. My prayer is that by the end of this time together, you would no longer, that you would repent, you would trust in Christ. But he, he went to the cross, stood in your stead if you were a believer. And what does Jesus do? He says, is there another way? Is there another way? Is there something else that could be done? Now, this, uh, I had a conversation with someone a couple weeks ago, and this doesn't, uh, the wills of God, the will of God here is not in contradiction. There's two different wills. There's the will of decree and will of desire. The will of decree was that it had to happen. The will of desire may have, like we wrestle with disciplining children sometimes. When my children disobey the law, they need discipline. My desire is not to discipline my children all times in a way that maybe would bring them pain. But the decree is that as a parent, I have to do that. It helps them. It changes them. It grows them. Here, Jesus displayed that. But what does he say? Not my will, not what is going to be easy, not an easier path, but your will be done. Paul also, in Acts 20, 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, my life is not my own. I'm just running the race that's been set before me, and it is to the glory of God. Now, Paul was a man that was beaten, shipwrecked, hungry, imprisoned, stoned, abandoned. But what did Paul do? He said, I know that all of this is the ministry that has been set before me. So, brothers and sisters, I ask you, what is the ministry that's been set before you? What has been set before you? How is the Lord using you right now? And could it be that in his using of you, there are struggles, there's trials, there's tribulations, there's hardships that he's bringing you through in order to accomplish his will. Paul said, my life is not my own. And brothers and sisters, I pray that that would be our resolve as well. The disciples here, they don't understand that Jesus is on the way to the cross. They don't understand what's been set ahead here. And in verse 8 we read, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? They're like, Jesus, don't you remember what just happened? Remember we were, we were over there and remember they were going to stone you. We left and like we're, we're, we're relaxing a little bit now. Remember that, Jesus? Like that just happened. And that's right down where you're trying to go. So you, we're just trying to give you a little warning here, Jesus. You might not want to go back there like Jesus isn't God. Jesus knows what's happening. And so Jesus gives them some clarification here. Look at what he says in verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
Now, in this period of history, uh, before wristwatches and uh, Apple watches and phones and uh, clocks that we throw up on the wall, the time was kept by when the sun was up and when the sun was down. When the sun was up, guess what you did? Worked. When the sun was down, guess what you did? Rest. Okay? Now we don't have such long work days, praise God. Uh, not, well, s- some of us with small children have long work days still like that. But there is uh, definitely a here we see the, this is how they're, they're keeping time. So what Jesus is saying here is that while there's daylight, there's work to be done. Uh, this is synonymous to what Jesus said back in um, verse, uh, he talks about this earlier in chapter 9, right, where he says, uh, we must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So here all Jesus is doing is just reminding them that before his death, before he dies on the cross, he has work to do. There's something that has to be done. And when verse 11 here, he tells them what his next work is. Look there with me. Here's what he says. He says, after saying these things, he said to them, Jesus said to them, our friend, so apparently they know Lazarus as well, hosted them. Their family probably hosted them on journeys. They, he's like, hey, this is, our, this is our friend. It's our friend Lazarus. And he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to Awaken him. Now, falling asleep is synonymous with death in the scriptures. He's basically saying here he's died, but guess what? They don't get it. They're not following. Now, it could be some uh, willful ignorance here. Like, they just, their their situation, they they really just don't want to go. So they're they're saying, we don't get it. What do you mean? So look at what they say. The disciples in verse 12 said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover, right? Like everything's going to be fine. He's taking a nap. Isn't that what you're supposed to do when you're sick? You rest like he's going to be fine, Jesus. We'll just stay right here where we're out of harm's way. And then John tells us, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. So Jesus just now, he's, he's laid it out there for them. They don't understand. So Jesus is now about to just put it, like, straight. He's going to shoot them straight here. And he says here in verse 14, So Jesus told them plainly, Listen, fellas, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. What's the point of John's gospel? What's the thesis of John's gospel? So that you may believe. And in believing, you may have life eternal, eternal life. That's the point here. And now what Jesus is showing us here is that he's including his disciples. He's saying, look, I I want you to see this. It is good for you to witness this as well. A couple application points here. One is that often it may take us a while to understand that hardships are for our good especially when we're in the middle of them. Like, it doesn't come easy. I, I don't for one second assume that after today that everyone in here is going to be able to leave here and to just be able to reconcile every hardship in their life for the glory of God. It takes time. And it takes the work of the Spirit to do that anyway. I have no control over that as much as I wish that I could. But we see here that while others, for us that are believers, right, maybe for us that are counseling others, we we must be patient with those that are still working through the details. Now, we must point them to truth. That's what Jesus does here. He, He points them to the truth. 
And while we don't have all the details of someone's specific situation, we can always point them to the truth of God's word, can't we? Romans 8, 28, we all are familiar with this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those that are called according to his purpose. So brothers and sisters, arming ourselves with this artillery helps us to obey our Savior while he's leading us straight towards trials. So we walk into the battle armed with promises like this. We say this is our artillery when we're feeling just destroyed, devastated. Like, like things can't get any worse, God. We say, but even if it never gets better here, it is for your purposes eternally. And because of that, it's okay. See, we arm ourselves here. We also must see here that as we arm ourselves, we must walk in obedience. And that's what we see here in verse 16. We see just a willingness to follow Jesus from Thomas. This is the first time Thomas has popped on the scene in John's gospel account. And he speaks up here and he says, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, obviously he had a twin, says, Let us also go that we may die with him. So Thomas says, If Jesus goes back there, He is going to die. But guess what? We'll die with him. We'll follow our Savior. I mean, does this not bring to memory here that those who wish to follow Christ must do what? Pick up your cross and follow me. It's not picking up the best life now. It's picking up a cross saying, I'm willing to die if that's what it takes. I'm willing to go through anything and everything in order to make great the name of my Savior. I will follow him into battle. I will follow him through trials and tribulations, knowing that he is victorious. And because he's victorious, guess what? So am I. And what they do here to this body does not matter. We march on glory. We will be raised again. Now, Thomas didn't have full understanding here of this, but he's showing this opportunity to follow Jesus and obey, even if it leads to death. So let me close here, brothers and sisters. I don't know what the days ahead will bring for you and me. I don't know what this afternoon will bring I don't know what everyone in here is currently going through. But I do know that there will be many trials and tribulations. There will be many trials and tribulations in this life. Listen, Christians are not immune to the hardships of the world. If you uh, are professed Christ upon that false promise, let me assure you that that is wrong. Especially if we truly obey this right here. If we are people that obey God's word the way He's called us to obey and live countercultural lives that stand up in the face of cultural opposition, that stand firm on the truths of Scripture, we will be pressed on all sides. We will face trials and tribulations. And listen, in this world, death is one of the hardships that we have to deal with. It just is a reality. But here in this text, we see God work through suffering. We see that God glorifies himself in the greatest pains possible. I brought up the cross of 
Calvary, the, Jesus about to approach it when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And let me just bring to memory here that that was the greatest suffering of all time. That the one who's never done anything wrong, the spotless lamb, the one who never sinned, God himself died and gave his life for a people that if we confess our sins, trust in him, and believe in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, repent, turn away from a life of rebellion, and pursue Christ, we then have the righteousness of Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin, but he died for those that would become righteous. So brothers and sisters, God takes the greatest suffering, the greatest death, and he turns it into something beautiful for us. John Bunyan once said, it is said that in some countries, trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. Church, let us trust that while we are journeying through the cold, bitter winters of suffering, that the Lord is producing fruit in our lives that is for our good and for his glory. Let us be a people resolved to that truth alone. Let us pray. Father, we give you praise and glory for your word. Lord, we, we praise your name that it is not our merit, it is not our works, it is not our goodness that could ever work out any plan of salvation. But it is your work alone. We thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you have poured out your wrath on our substitute, Jesus Christ. And I pray that if there's anyone in this gathering today that does not understand that reality and they have not repented, believed in the name of Jesus and followed him, I pray, God, that they would do that today. Father, we thank you that we are promised life eternal as your people. I thank you for all of your kindness, all of your goodness, all of your love. Thank you, God, that you loved us, and because of that, we can love others, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So.